You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I have a ton of new information on Ed's case for you today. Before I begin, I want to give you an update on a few things. First of all, a lot of you are waiting on the profile of the crime scene by Laura Richards. I'm hoping that will be happening soon. I talked to Laura a couple of days ago, and she has just been swamped busy. She's working on a couple of TV shows. She's been out of the country. If I understood her correctly, she's also working on creating United States wing of her stalking foundation that she created in the UK. So that's also taking up a lot of her time. She said she still plans on doing the profile. She just needs time to get to it. So I'm guessing it'll be after the holidays. Secondly, I want to address the David Dobbs situation. Like I said several weeks ago, I'm going to stop telling you when it's coming because there have been multiple times where we have made plans to do it and we keep getting delayed. I am still in communication with Dobbs, but the last I heard from him, he still hasn't been able to get to the DA's office to look over the file and he doesn't want to do the interview until he's reviewed it. So we'll see if and when that happens. But as I've said before, we're just going to keep marching on until then. And lastly, I want to discuss the status of our open records request. I had an email exchange with Philip Smith of the Smith County District Attorney's Office on Monday. At this point, it has been almost two months since Smith County cashed the check that I sent them for the work they're doing in this open record request, and I have still not received the documents. Philip said that he was out of the office on military leave for a little while, and they were short-staffed, but he's back now, and he told me that they should have the request fulfilled by next Friday. Now, what does that mean for all of you? I believe this open records request is going to make a significant difference in where we go from here with Ed's case, and we're going to have a lot more to talk about once that happens. Keep in mind that what is in this open records request is all of the information that the prosecution had on Ed's case that they did not use in trial. That means this is everything that they found that did not help their case. Contained in those boxes are lots of new crime scene photos that we've never seen before. We have recorded interviews with Leonard Mosley and Monica Bush. We have all the interview notes from their investigation and talks with Angela Walker. The Attorney General has ordered them to turn over all of the prosecution's attorney work product. That means every note, every thought, anything that David Dobbs or Shoemaker wrote down during the course of that case will be in this request. After Friday's follow-up episode dropped, several people have been asking when we're going to start on our next case. And the answer is, I don't know yet. We've reviewed several cases. We're continuing to review more cases. It does take time. There have been a few that we thought were good cases, and as we began our initial investigation, it turned out that it looks like the person may actually be guilty or that there is no legal angle available to them anymore. 
but we're continuing to review those cases and I'd like to have one ready to launch by January of next year, but I believe that it'll probably be a few months after that because I think that once we get this open records request, we're going to have a lot more to talk about in Ed's case. And speaking of Ed's case, I want to get right into today's topic. In segment one, I have several things that were discovered in the last two weeks by re-examining the documents that we do have and cross-referencing everything. And the conclusion that we've come to after looking through all these documents is that the Smith County Justice System has failed Edward Eights in every way imaginable. I want to start this segment out today by discussing one of the reports sent back to Smith County from the FBI crime lab in Quantico. This is the same crime lab that did the testing on the scraping from Ed's shoe, the test that determined that whatever was on his shoe contained human protein, which is also the same test that said the control, the known human feces, did not contain human protein. But when reading through this document before, my focus was on their testing of that scraping on Ed's shoes. But there's one sentence on the second page of this report that raises a lot more questions about this crime scene. Now, as a background, I'm sure all of you know this, but Elnora Griffin was African-American. So was Edward Eights. So was Margie Dews. So was Maggie Dews. So was Johnny Pryor. So was Kubia Jackson. So was Lionel Williams. So was Leonard Mosley. So was Francis Johnson. So were Elnora's kids and her grandkids. Literally every character in this case is African-American. I've been told by Johnny that Elnora did not have a lot of friends since she'd moved to Tyler. She hadn't been here that long, and basically everyone that I just mentioned to you is everyone that Elnora knows and everyone who has ever been inside of that trailer. But what I found in this report to the FBI is that in the evidence that was sent to the FBI crime lab, there was a hair found that Smith County didn't see. What was sent to the crime lab was 26 latent fingerprints and photos that were lifted from the scene, the scraping from Ed's shoe, the pillowcase from the bedroom that seemed to have a footprint on it, and the known feces sample from the floor of Elnora's bedroom right next to her bed. And that sample that's identified in this report as specimen Q3 is where this hair was found. This sentence of the report reads, A head hair of Caucasian origin found in specimen Q3 has been preserved on a glass microscope slide for possible future comparisons. Now remember, Q3 was the feces sample taken off of the floor in Elnora's bedroom right next to her bed. This is a problem because this wasn't some random hair that was floating around the room. It was literally right at the crime scene, right at the point where the struggle began And the best I can figure is that it was stuck to that feces sample because the report doesn't indicate that they submitted a hair. It says that they submitted the sample and the FBI lab found the hair on it. And it was a hair of Caucasian origin and we don't know of any Caucasians that had been in that trailer, much less had they been in the bedroom and recently enough that it was still on the floor and stuck to that feces sample. This is the reason for any of you that follow us on Twitter that I was asking for any hairstylist to get a hold of me. And several did, and I want to thank all of you who helped me out on this. I was trying to figure out where this Caucasian hair could have come from. And the first thing that I thought of was that several hairstylists that had looked at photos of Angela Walker had told me that it looked like she was wearing a weave or a wig. And in some of the photos, she's wearing long, straight, blondish hair. And again, for clarification's sake, Angela Walker is African-American. My question to the hairstylist was, where does the hair in a weave or a wig come from? 
And the answer is that in lower end weaves, it could be synthetic hair, but in the higher end, nicer weaves and wigs, it's made from actual human hair. I sent a few pictures to a few of the stylists, and the consensus seems to be that in current pictures of Angela Walker, that she very well may be wearing a weave or a wig that is made out of Caucasian hair. Now, let me make clear here that that does not make this some kind of smoking gun. It's just opening up doors to possibilities of where that hair could have come from. And one possibility is that it could have come from a wig or a weave, an African-American person wearing a weave that is made out of Caucasian hair. But that's not the only possibility. All of the detectives that were working the case were all Caucasian. Now, to do a proper crime scene investigation, they should have been wearing Tyvek suits, rubber gloves, booties, and hairnets. This is a critical operating procedure for investigating a crime scene when you're trying to find trace evidence. You can't risk leaving your own DNA, fingerprints, or hairs behind on the scene because it would corrupt the evidence. At this point, we have no idea whether or not that was done. I'm kind of thinking it probably wasn't considering the fact that you should also use evidence marker tents for everything you take a photo of. Every piece of evidence, especially evidence that's going to be used in court, should be photographed as it's found before it's touched. And anything like a stain or a footprint or anything along those lines should be photographed with a scale next to it so you can later determine the actual size. None of that was done in this crime scene. So I'm thinking that hoping that they were following protocol in order to avoid evidence contamination is probably a lost cause here. But the continued failure in this case is the fact that we have no record anywhere of them actually testing that hair, which is ridiculous. They have a hair that was found in the crime scene at the point of the struggle, and it is clearly a foreign hair. They knew that it did not belong to Elnora Griffin, and as far as we can tell, they never tested it. But the good news is, according to this report, that hair was preserved. Now, if it did come from a wig or a weave, that's really not going to help us, because whoever was wearing it, it wasn't their hair. It would have helped in 1993, because they had some known suspects that they could have gotten a warrant for and seen if they had any wigs or weaves and compared the hairs. But unfortunately, 23 years later, it's no longer an option. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Now, the second failure that I want to discuss today doesn't come from Smith County at all. It comes from Dallas. A few weeks ago, we broke down the open records request that we received back from the Texas Department of Public Safety Crime Lab. One of the issues that we had was that in Lorna Beasley's report, she says that when the hairs were sent for analysis, they were only requested to be analyzed and tested against Edward Eights, even though they had known samples of Leonard Mosley's on file. We know from the trial testimony that they were only tested against Eights, and I was pretty pissed off that Smith County only asked them to do that when they had other options available to them. Well, as it turns out, This mistake was not made by Jason Waller of Smith County. This mistake was made by Lorna Beasley herself. Now, Lorna Beasley, for those of you that don't know, is the same forensic scientist that worked on Carrie Max Cook's case. 
Carrie has a lot of issues with Beasley because it was discovered late into his case that a bloody knife was collected from the crime scene and Cook requested for DNA testing on that knife. And apparently, and I do not have the records for this, but this is from what Carrie and his wife Sandy have told me, the DPS in Smith County, for some reason, maintained all of the evidence in that case and preserved it, but when he asked for the DNA testing of the knife, Beasley's office had destroyed it. So the short story is, Beasley has a history of working with Smith County already. Now in this particular case, I took this report that she wrote that said that the only requested analysis was for the hair to be tested against Edward Eights, and I went back and found the actual submission that Jason Waller made with those hairs. And as it turns out, in the submission that Waller made, it has a list of all the different hairs that were found on the crime scene. Hairs from the blanket, the house, the sheets, from Elnora's underwear, and in the right-hand column of this request, it says, Examination Requested. And what Jason Waller typed into that section is, Compare with those of the suspect eight and also Leonard Mosley and the victim. And that is for every single hair that was sent to the Texas Department of Public Safety Crime Lab. Compare it with eight, Mosley, and Elnora. Now, this submission was made in October of 1996, but it's in May of 1997 when Beasley writes back to Waller. In this letter, and she references it's from that submission that Waller made in October. And she says the results of analysis. The remainder of the previously recovered hairs were visually and or microscopically dissimilar to known head and pubic hair standards from Edward Eights. It doesn't say anything about Leonard Mosley or Elnora Griffin. And above that, it says requested analysis. So this is supposed to be her relaying back to Waller what he actually asked her to do. But her letter says requested analysis. Comparison of recovered hairs to known hair specimens from Edward Eights. That's it. Nothing about Mosley and nothing about Elnora. After reading this, I went back to the trial testimony to see what actually happened. And sure enough, it's just as I had remembered. There was only one hair that was ever tested against Leonard Mosley. And that was the one hair that was microscopically similar to Ed. So they ran a DNA profile on that and they compared that DNA profile to Elnora Griffin and Leonard Mosley. During the questioning of Beasley, she starts to discuss another hair, and Dobbs asks if she compared it to Mosley, and she says, no, I didn't. And then he immediately changes the subject. We've discussed this before, but this is where he mentions that hairs fall off all the time, and they can be found all over the crime scene, and it's not uncommon for there to be a lot of hairs. And then he moves on to a completely different topic and gets off the hairs completely. So it looks like, based on this paper trail, that the initial failure was Lorna Beasley's failure to follow through with what was actually requested by Jason Waller, which was to compare all of the hairs to Eights, Mosley, and Elnora. But it doesn't end there, because even when she made this mistake, when it got sent back to Smith County, their response should have been to finish the testing like we asked you to do. But once they found out that those hairs didn't belong to Edward Eights, it appears, based on this documentation, that they didn't care who they belonged to. And as we move on here, I think we have a pretty good understanding now as to why they didn't care. Before I get into what we're about to discuss here, I want to throw a big thank you out to listener Tabitha. I once again had requested on Twitter for anyone who lives in the Tyler area to get a hold of me because I had a mission for them. And I had several listeners that volunteered. Tabitha is the one who actually went and did it. But we finally have some real answers to some very serious questions. What I was asking to be done was for someone to go to the Tyler Public Library 
and go through the microfiche and find newspaper articles about Elnora's murder. I'd asked the librarian at the library to take care of this a few weeks ago, and I never heard back. As it turns out, she had started pulling the articles, but she just hadn't gotten back to me yet. So she actually sat down with Tabitha and went over the articles. The first article is from Saturday, July 24th, 1993. This is the day after Elnora's body was found. Let me read to you the fourth paragraph of this article that was on the front page. Deputies found the woman, believed to be in her late 30s to early 40s, lying face down with her throat apparently slit on the living room floor of her home, about seven miles east of Tyler. So this is the first thing that I wanted to know. Was it public information that Elnora's throat was slit? And it is very obvious right from the very beginning, the morning after her body was found, that the police were not withholding the information that Elnora's throat was slit, not that she was choked. There was another article a couple of days later on Monday. Again, it was on the front page. This time in the first paragraph, it states, Smith County Sheriff's deputies are continuing an investigation into the death of a woman found with her throat slashed late Friday inside of her residence seven miles east of Tyler. Two paragraphs later, the article is quoting Detective Captain Bobby Garman. Quote, Garman said Miss Griffin's throat had been cut with an unknown type of weapon. Again, clearly public information that her cause of death was that her throat was cut and nothing mentioned about choking. But this article also starts to paint another picture, a picture that might help to explain to us the motive in Smith County insisting on getting this arrest and getting this conviction. At the end of the article, it says, If the cause of death is ruled a homicide, it will be the seventh this year in Smith County, homicide detective Jason Waller said. Waller said the previous six have been solved. Now, this may not seem out of the ordinary, but it's important to understand that this information came from a press release from the Smith County Sheriff's Department. I have written many press releases for many incidents and many crimes over the years. I have never included in my press release the stats for how many similar crimes we've already solved. But Waller's making a point here just a couple of days after the murder to make sure it's known that they have solved every single murder that has occurred in Smith County that year. They're batting a 1,000 up to this point, and Bobby Garman ends the article with this, quote, We are working around the clock on this case. So it's clear that they are trying to control public opinion and letting people know that they always get their man. The next article that we have is from the front page of the Tyler Morning Telegraph the day after Ed H. was arrested. I'll read you the first two paragraphs. Smith County Sheriff's deputies have arrested a neighbor of a woman brutally slain last month in a residence on Texas Highway 31, seven miles east of Tyler. Edward Lewis Ates, 25, is charged with the murder in the death of 47-year-old Elnora Griffin, whose throat was slashed after she was severely beaten on July 22nd. So again, at this point, every single article clearly states that her throat was slashed. As the article goes on, it again says, the weapon used to slash the victim's throat had not been recovered. No secret about her throat being slashed. And again, the last paragraph of this article states, Miss Griffin's death marks the seventh homicide this year in the county and arrests have been made in all of them, authorities said. So here again, Smith County is making sure all the citizens know that they always get their man. In the last article I have was on the front page of the Tyler Morning Telegraph, the day after Ed was convicted. And here's a quote from that article. 
Miss Griffin was found in July 1993 in her trailer home with her throat slit. So at this point, we're batting a thousand. Every article we were able to find clearly states that Elnora's throat was slit. And never in any single one of these articles does it say anything about her being choked. Why would this boy go in and just choke this woman to death? I just can't see him just choking her to death. The woman was choked to death. Well, how had blood going to be when she was choked to death? Then they told me, how was she killed? Oh, she was choked to death. And that's all, and that's that's what I knew up until now. I yeah. didn't know my throat was cut. When you said blood, it, I can be blood everywhere. Right. She was choked to death. Not only did every single newspaper article that was published about this murder clearly state that Elnora's throat was slashed, but that same information would have been available on all the TV news reports. Also, don't forget that Leonard Mosey was on the crime scene that night talking to Johnny Pryor, who saw Elnora's body with the blood everywhere. He also said that he stayed in close communication with her children, who knew that her throat was slit. In Ed Aid's police interview, they told him that her throat was slit. So at this point, we can only assume that they told Leonard Mosley the same thing. But the issue here is not only the fact that Leonard Mosley was lying about not knowing that her throat was slit, but the bigger concern is what was never public information was the fact that she was choked. Up to this point, we have speculated over and over again that the Smith County Sheriff's Department and the prosecutor's office would stop at nothing to get their man. We have several instances where it seems quite apparent that the powers that be in Smith County were not only lying, but fabricating evidence. Other than Kubia Jackson's statement and the scraping on Ed's shoe, there were only four pieces of physical evidence or circumstantial evidence that tied Ed to this crime scene. First, we have the towel hanging on the door with the big handprint in it. This piece of evidence is very suspect. There were no photos taken of the detectives attempting to measure the handprint. All three detectives, Waller, McKay, and Huckel, all had three different accounts at trial as to when they found the handprint, who found the handprint, and how they tried to measure it. None of the detectives documented in their crime scene report that there was a handprint on the towel, and they never collected the towel into evidence. This would lead us to believe that maybe the handprint never was on the towel. But what are the odds that detectives, officers of the law, would make something like that up? The next piece of evidence used to convict Ed was the seat in the car pushed all the way back. But did it really happen? There are no photographs of the seat being pushed back. There's nothing noted in any report that the seat was pushed all the way back. Again, all three detectives, Waller, McKay, and Huckel, have three different accounts as to when it was discovered that the car seat was pushed all the way back and who discovered it. But surely they wouldn't just lie and fabricate something like that. And then we have the car stereo that was tuned to a rap music station. Remember, this is evidence that was actually used at trial to convict Ed Eights. But this is also riddled with problems. They didn't have the keys to the car the night they actually processed it. Whoever actually did it, we don't even know at this point. There's no way Waller could have known the night the crime scene was investigated what station the car stereo was tuned to. 
Melody McKay says she noticed it a week later after the scene had been turned over to the family and the car had been moved. And furthermore, from what everyone is telling me, it wasn't actually a rap music station. It was the only African-American station in Tyler. And during the day, the station played gospel music, and at night they played rap and hip-hop music. But do we even know at this point if the radio was even tuned to that station? Surely it must have been. An officer of the law wouldn't lie about something like that, right? And lastly, we have the candy wrappers. The one juror we spoke to said that the Jolly Rancher wrappers was a big deal to him. He couldn't get around that. There was a watermelon Jolly Rancher wrapper found in the trash can in the guest bathroom and another one found in Detective Waller's office. Or were they? We first had the candy wrapper that was found on the crime scene, supposedly. It wasn't collected into evidence the night they did the crime scene investigation. It wasn't documented in a report. It was collected by Jason Waller the day after the crime scene had been turned back over to the family and they had been in there moving things out of the house. But let's put a pin in that for a second, because then there's the second Jolly Rancher wrapper that ties Ed in. The second one was found in Jason Waller's office where Ed's interview took place. This was used as a link to put Ed on the crime scene. Except there's some issues there, too. Ed has swore to me from the beginning, before he even knew if or why it would be relevant, that he interviewed in Detective Dale Huckel's office. He also told me that it was Bobby Gorman who went into a public bathroom after he was in there and grabbed the candy wrapper out of the trash can and carried it back into the room. Huckel, in his report used to get the second indictment against Ed, has a completely different story than Ed has about where that wrapper came from. But, I mean, we can trust Huckel. I mean, after all, he's a detective. He's the one that upholds law and order. He always gets his man, and he would never lie. Well, let me take you back to two weeks ago when I was analyzing that DPS report about the knife that was found on the side of the road and the other knife that was found in the tractor where Ed works. You remember that supplemental report that we broke down, and we pulled out every fabrication and lie out of that supplemental report. And again, this is a report that was written after Ed was arrested prior to his indictment. And in that report, Huckel describes the knife that was found in the tractor where Edward Eights works. But when we compared that to the lab reports, the knife they tested was found on the side of the road. And I ended that episode by saying, I think there was only ever one knife. Well, what I'm about to read to you is not only going to make you sick. It's going to answer the question of do we have actual proof that the Smith County Sheriff's Department would completely fabricate evidence and lie? I found a very short report in our files. This report was created by Detective Jason Waller on September 13, 1993. The last paragraph of this report reads, Waller then received from Huckel a Schrade brand 5.5-inch two-blade folding knife with brown stag handle, which had been recovered by Huckel on September 9th. Huckel advised that he had received this item from a Bob Norman, who had apparently found it alongside of Highway 31, east of Tyler, in the area of the deceased and the defendant's residence. Now, for those of you that don't remember, Bob Norman was Ed's boss. Ed has thought for all of these years that that knife was found on Bob Norman's property. And that's because Ed's lawyers told him that the prosecution told them that that's where this knife was found, on the tractor where Ed works. But here we have in this report, written just four days after the fact, where Waller says that Huckel did get the knife from Bob Norman, but Bob Norman had found it on the side of the highway. 
The DPS lab report says that the knife they tested was found on the side of the highway. But five months later, Dale Huckel wrote this into his report for the indictment. Quote, On September 8, 1993, Mr. Norman found a large folding knife hidden behind the seat of his Ford 1920 series tractor that Edward had been using. Mr. Norman advised me that none of the other employees claimed the knife and he believed it belonged to Edward. Mr. Norman advised me that he had fired Edward several days before because Edward had developed a bad attitude at work and only wanted to drive the tractor and do nothing else. This is the smoking gun that proves that the Smith County Sheriff's Department, namely Detective Dale Huckel, did not just make errors in this investigation. He didn't screw up. He intentionally, completely fabricated evidence to arrest and convict Edward Eights. This was not an error. This was not a typo. He didn't just mix up where the knife was found. The report clearly states it was found on the side of the highway, and he goes into detail to create this bullshit story about where the knife was found. Quote, The knife was hidden behind the seat of his Ford 1920 series tractor that Edward had been using. Mr. Norman advised that none of the other employees claimed the knife, and he believed it belonged to Edward. All of that is a lie. None of it is based in reality. It was a fucking knife that was found on the side of the road. And he concocted this whole story to make sure they got their indictment. This is not just disturbing. It's disgusting. I can't even find the words to describe how angry this is making me. All I can come up with is this. I hope that every single person that worked on this case is listening to this right now. And I pray to God that you are feeling the shame that you should be. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Michael Bussing. The intro music today was To the Top by Score Squad. All other music was created by Shane Yoder. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Hoyt, and Sarah Mueller for transcribing all the episodes and mailing them off to Ed and Kenny every week. I want to thank all of you, as always, for all of your engagement and support. And if you like the show and you want to help out, there's a lot of ways you can do that. A big one that helps us out a lot that doesn't cost you anything is if you go into iTunes and leave a favorable review for us. That helps move us up in the charts and makes us more visible to people to get more involved in the case. You can pledge a monthly donation as low as $1 a month at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can purchase Truth and Justice Apparel at truthandjusticeapparel.com. And most importantly, stay engaged. Keep sending in those thoughts, theories, and ideas into theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send in new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>